Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. This week, we are talking about Perry Roubaix. To no surprise of anyone listening to this at this point, but Sonny Cabrelli won Perry Roubaix over Florian Vermeesh and Matthew Vanderpool on Sunday in, in what some people are saying is potentially one of the best races of all time. I personally think that's a little bit of recency bias. It was a fantastic race, though. Um, undeniably the race of the year so far. And I will be getting into a little bit of Giro di Lombardia, which is coming up in the Lombardia region of Italy this coming Saturday. Um, it's Italian race, so it's on Saturday. I guess, yeah, I'm not quite sure why they do that, but every big Italian race is on Saturday instead of Sunday, and it is the final one-day monument of the year. But first, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition. It comes out once a week. It's a no-brainer if you like the podcast. There is also a paid edition. It comes out three times a week during non-Grand Tour weeks and daily during Grand Tours. There's also discounts to select brands like Stages Cycling, FastCat Coaching, Curie of Switzerland. So sign up for that today at beyondthepeloton.substack.com if you want even more cycling coverage. All right, well, Perry Bay, really fantastic edition. Rain, first rainy edition since 2002. Uh, Sonny Cabrelli won, which I did not expect. I didn't even mention him in my pre-race preview, which went out on Friday. He was plus 3,300 odds to win, which while long are not crazy, you know, like Johnny Moscon was at plus 10,000 and he nearly won the race. I mean, personally, Moscon, I would thought had a higher chance of winning. He's gotten fourth year before, or sorry, fifth year before he got fourth on Sunday, this race. And one of the weird, I mean, maybe we'll try to unpack this a little bit later in the pod, but experience seemed to not matter, um, which really surprised me, especially in a wet edition when you would think experience would would mean everything when it's so muddy and slippery on the cobblestones. I just thought that riders who had experience riding on cobblestones this rough, rough and racing on cobblestones this rough would do better. But in fact, all three of the winner, all three of the podium finishers had never raced Roubaix before. And I could not find another example of a rider winning the race in his first ever appearance. There's a there's like an urban legend that Bernardino hated the race so much but he did it one time and won just to shut people up that's actually not true he won it like on his fourth his fourth time racing i'm not quite sure where that myth started there's a lot of like eno myths where like he broke a strike because there was strikers in the road and he punched one um a lot a lot of tall tales around that guy but in, in fact did not win the race on his first time doing it that's what makes sunny capelli's win so unexpected and so impressive and really redefines a lot of my expectations about Roubaix. You know, for years, I just thought it was experience is what matters. So a lot of this just shatters uh, really my preconceived notions of what it took to win the race. And maybe most shocking is that Cabrelli really attacked from the, the main peloton uncontested with about 85 kilometers to go. He really just rolled off the front with, with no response from the group behind. He even just looks back. And it, it, you can tell he's a little bit shocked that no one's going to respond. They're just fanned out across the road. And he wastes no time and just kind of punches it on a paved section of road, not a cobble, not a cobbled section sector, and bridges up to the second group on the road. Eventually, Matthew Vanderpool would attack with about 69, 70 kilometers to go on a cobbled section. And then when he got to the road, punched it up to that same Cabrelli group. It was a really impressive move. He closed about 30 seconds and a kilometer to the second group, to the Cabrelli group, the second group on the road. 
I think, my personal opinion, if Cabrelli was in the in the Vanderpool group when the move happened, he would not have been able to respond, especially since the terrain favored Vanderpool. You know, the rough, wet cobbles, especially with turns, Vanderpool was able to just go through the turns with a lot more ease and a lot more speed than everybody else. And he was gaining time in every corner. I think he would have dropped Cabrelli right there. But that's why it shows Cabrelli's move was so, so, so savvy. That's you see this a lot at Roubaix. I think there's a misunderstanding about the race where everyone remembers the big attacks on the cobblestones. Like we remember Boonin winning in what was that 2009 with, with his attack on the Carrefour de Labra, uh, with, with on a really, uh, you know, on a rough, rough five, sec, five star sector of cobblestone late in the race. Uh, but it doesn't actually happen that often. A lot of times the moves come on the paved sections because what happens is. Um, exactly what happened with Cabrelli is if let's back up for a little bit with 100k to go the peloton quote-unquote peloton hits the Arnberg forest which usually opens proceedings usually we have a big peloton coming into this uh, really really rough section of cobblestone it's straight to it kind of like starts you go in downhill so you're flying um, always carnage like always really just a ton of crashes at the beginning but but a strange thing like an unusual thing about uh, the race this year you know likely because of all the rain and the mud and how difficult it was early, early in the cobbles, and just you know, because of the weather conditions, is the peloton was really whittled down. It was the smallest I've ever seen the peloton at this point in the race. They, I mean, they hit the cobblestones in the Armbrook first, but it's like ten to fifteen people in that front group. I've never seen it like that before. Um, basically, like just uh, two breakaways chasing each other with the breakaway up front, and then the peloton behind. But uh, Wout Van Aert, he, he was, I don't, I don't know what was going on with him. It, you know, physically, potentially, he was just tired from the long season. If you think about all the different things he's done, he did uh, cyclocross world championships early this year, like at either late January or early February, jumps right into the cobbled classics, then goes into, you know, if you remember, he got second at Torino Adriatico. It seems like a lifetime ago. There was a lot, he was just doing a lot of different things. And he goes to the Tour de France to do a lot of work for the team wins three stages, and then tries to build back up for Worlds. So long story short, it's been a long season. He Potentially, he's just fried physically from that. He hasn't quite looked like he's had the same form that he had at the recent Tour of Britain. And then even the time trial of end of the World Championships, it just looked like a week, maybe just a week too early because you know, he showed up to the road race, was not his sparkling self, um, even the form that he showed a week earlier at the time trial. And then this Roubaix race, obviously he's good to be in that front group, but he was falling back in these cobble sections. Um, he almost crashes with 110 kilometers to go because he's sitting way too far back at the back of the group. There's a crash, he just misses it. He's moving up on the paved sections, and then in the cobblestone sections, he's just falling back. Um, there's a crash in the Armored Forest. He's sitting like second to last, and there's a crash right in front of him. He, it's incredible. He saved it and kept it up, but then he's chasing back onto the group, which is splitting up, by the way. Vanderpool's dropping uh, like the six to eight rider group in the peloton. So not only does he have to invest a ton of energy just to bridge back up to the dropped riders, he then has to uh, you know, immediately start taking up the pace to pull back the Vanderpool group. That doesn't happen for about 10 kilometers, which is right when Cabrelli attacks. So Cabrelli timed this perfectly. He um, knows that since the groups just came back together, there was going to be a bit of a lull. The chasing riders were going to take a moment to sit up because they just invested a huge amount of energy. Um, I mean, these guys are putting out massive watch. You're, you're riding for your life at that point when you're chasing on to a group right in front of you like that. 
And then even the, the Vanderpool group that was in front, they're riding kind of all out because they want to make it as hard as possible for the chasing group behind. So Cabrelli knows that this is a great time to attack. Um, and, and it's part of the reason why there's no response to him. Another, you know, another reason, I have a hard time believing that if Vanderpool attacks right there, it's not marked. I think the other favorites just kind of wrote him off. They're just like, well, this guy, he doesn't really know how to ride cobblestones. Um, we're going to catch him and drop him anyway um, further up the road, especially when we hit some five-star sectors of cobblestones. So don't worry about him. Um, famous last words right there, because, you know, that's really in a lot of the respects, in a lot of respects, the winning move of the race. Because when Vanderpool attacks, as I mentioned earlier, with 69k to go, you know, he's flying. It was that to me, that was the move of the race uh, when Vanderpool bridged from the Vanderpool group, I guess the Peloton, up to the second group on the road behind the breakaway. He puts so much time, or I guess chops so much time out of that group. It was really impressive, kind of stunning stuff. Um, and, I, and I don't think Abrelli could have stayed with him. And you even see, I mean, there's two Dakonic quick, quick step riders with him. I, I believe Yves Lampar and uh, Zendek Stibar, who actually got dropped earlier by Van Art. Um, not a great day for quick step. We'll, we'll try to unpack that a little bit later. Um, but the, he just rides them straight off their wheel. So if they can't stick with him, I have a hard time believing Cabrelli can stick with him. Since those two, those two riders are cobbled specialists. So then once Vanderpool and Cabrelli are together in that second group on the road, uh, Moscon shortly after Johnny Moscon, who was up in the breakaway, the early break, um, sheds the other two riders, one of them being Florian Vermeesh. And he goes solo. Uh, pretty, pretty bold move. I mean, to attack from 55k out, I believe that's about the same distance that Tom Boonen attacked to go solo to win the 2012 edition. And similar to the distance uh, with Peter Sagan attacking to go solo in 2018. It has precedence, but it's really spectacular and really difficult. Um, what, was, what was really shocking to me about this is he attacks with about, I think he had like 56, 58 seconds on the chasing Vanderpool group. You know, when it gets to, you know, 20K goes by and his gap is out to 127. So he's putting time into the chasing group. Um, I, I was really impressed with Moscon right here. I should mention Moscon is like a garbage human. He's, he's a bad person. He is, uh, he's like racially abused black riders in the past in races. And then when people testified against him about that, he physically threw a guy off his bike on descent to try to, I guess, kill him. I, I mean, he could have killed him. I, I don't quite know what his aim was there. And then to, on top of that, he just straight up cheats sometime. Like at the world championships, in 27, no, that was uh, 2018 or 2017, one of those, the Bergen World Championships. He's just sort of straight up holding onto a car to ride from group to group. Um, bad person, not good. I, I think some people are like, see Neil Rogers, not to call out Neil, um, great guy. Um, my first editor got, got me into writing about cycling. So I owe a lot to Neil. But I, Neil is a bit of an apologist for him where he's like, well, th this all happens in the heat of the battle. And when you meet him, off the bike, he's a good person, but these are really bad things. I mean, the cheating is not good. Like that doesn't point to a great moral compass, and there's really no excuse for racially racially abusing someone, especially if they're a black rider in what is must be a 98 percent white sport, and then to physically, I mean, almost murder someone who tried to testify against you. It, it's a little crazy to me that he's even still on Ineos and like allowed to be such a major figure in the sport. Um, but yeah, I understand why it's complicated. Ineos wants to win races. You know, they're, they're putting a lot of money into this. He's pr it probably actually helps them that he's so controversial because it depresses his market value. It means they don't have to pay him a ton of money, even though he's a world-class rider. Yo, what are the commentators going to do every time he 
is on the front say, yeah, just, just by the way, this guy sucks. Uh, don't cheer for him. So I understand it, it puts a lot of people in a really difficult position. But having said that, uh, I was not excited when he was pulling out an ever-growing gap on Vanderpool and the Cabrelli group and appeared to be riding somewhat uncontested to a fantastic solo win at Roubaix. It was kind of like worst nightmare stuff. But having said that, I did bet on him the day before because it was plus 10,000. I was thinking, this is crazy. Like, this guy could win the race. These are amazing odds. So I'm part of the problem here. I, I was deep down thinking, wow, well, this is great for me financially if he wins the race. But uh, I guess I hope it doesn't happen. Um, but what was interesting right here from a betting perspective, too, is, you know, if you had exposure to Moscon, you could. It, I did not see the, the Cabrelli performance coming so but what was nice about this is you could recover in race you know even at this point he was plus about plus 400 in the live betting odds so i immediately log on and put money on him and then i could put money on um, any other writer which covered me for florian vermich i was pretty confident at this point vanderpool was not going to win the race because he was doing so much work just it seemed like he had been on the front since the armbrick forest um, and that's not how you win Pere Roubaix. that's just not how that works that's not how you win many races, um, especially big races. You can get away with it at smaller races, which is where this bad habit is being formed and cultivated. Um, same thing with Remco Evenepoel. So I was pretty confident Vanderpool wasn't going to win. Vanderpool was eating up a lot of the betting money because people like him. He's a big star. He looks good on a bike. He looks strong. If you don't know a ton about cycling, you're like, this guy's definitely going to win. So that created a great little um, opportunity here where you could put money on Moscon, you could put money on Vermiche. And I actually thought there was Guillaume Bivon, Bovine. I don't know. I think it's Bivon in the group as well. And he is, no one knows this guy. He, he was on Rally for years. Now he's on Israel Startup Nation. He's very fast. He was uh, like the writer of the North American scene for a long time. He was just a step ahead, a step above everybody and specifically his sprint. So um, I thought if they went to the velodrome together that Guillaume had a chance to win the race. So that any other rider gave you great exposure to Florian Vermiche, um, Guillaume, and then you could buy Cabrelli separately at pretty good odds at that point. If you think about that, looking back, plus 400 for Cabrelli when it was clear that it was going to be one of those five riders in the second group or Moscon winning, it was. Uh, you don't get many scenarios like that in sports gambling where you can almost be assured of picking the winner at, you know, at positive odds. You're not even picking at negative odds at that point. So um, pr pretty good right there. But what happens is, so, and one thing I noticed here is, so Vanderpool, the gap is going, the gap's going out. Part of the reason is no one wants to work with Vanderpool because, so I'm going to work with this guy and then he's going to beat me in the sprint on the velodrome. Like, why would I do that? But Vanderpool still has to try to garner support here for the chase. He can't, do this alone. And if he wants to do it alone, he better get away clean because what he starts doing is he's panicking a little bit. He's, a, he's attacking everyone in the corners and the cobblestones, which, which makes sense. He's so good at it. Um, that is where he should be attacking. But if you're going to do that, you have to get away and you have to get away clean because if you don't get away, everyone remembers that you just attacked him and they will not work with you. Um, and that's exactly what started happening here. Um, really, truly worst case scenario. I think he should have just been you know, contributing to the, to the pacemaking without going over the top and encouraging the others to, to set pace with them by not attacking them. You, you try to get to the Car Carrefour de Labra with 16K to go. 
make a move there, hope that's enough to get away and pull Moscon back. I think that's what the plan should have been in, instead of this constant attack, um, which, which attacking and not getting away, which slows up the pace, which only helps Johnny Moscon up front. And another thing that should have been in the back of all their minds is um, with 29k to go, Johnny Moscon gets a flat. This is not totally, you, you normally in a race, you can't just sit back and hope the rider in front of you gets a flat tire. You kind of can at Pair Roubaix. You know, it happens all the time. There's so many flats on this race, especially since Johnny Moscon was riding clencher wheels, which to me is crazy that you would ride tubious clenchers at Perry Roubaix. I mean, this is, this, I know tubulars are, are kind of a thing of the past, but if there's any race to ride tubulars at, it, it's this one. Um, totally crazy to me. He wasn't on tubulars. You could see him struggling with traction on the cobblestones even before the flat, because probably because of that, because you can't get the pressure as low as with a tubular without the risk of a pinch flat. Um, even though there's no inner tube in there, you can't burp them and you can dent the wheel and then you can't hold air in the wheel anymore, in the tire anymore. And then he gets a spare bike from the team car. It's a really, uh, a really slow bike change. Um, and, and really every second counts because at that point, the gap is down to around a minute. Um, the mechanic doesn't even put the spare bottles on his bike. So he gets on the bike with no, no nutrition, which could further decrease his chances of staying away. And as soon as he gets on this bike, it's clear things are not right. There, there was too much pressure in the tires. I don't know how they let this happen, but it was it was set up for almost like a dry day at Roubaix. Or, or maybe the, the pressure was even too high for a dry day because he is slipping and sliding around all over the place. He's going, it was shocking how much slower he was going than the chasers, um, simply because he could not get any traction on the cobblestones. And then with 20K to go, he falls in a muddy patch. Uh, just like a really muddy section of cobblestones, which was not a surprise. Um, if you're riding clinchers with a high air pressure on cobblestones, this is an inevitability. Um, and kind of what was impressive is he gets up. They're almost, they've almost caught him at this point. He keeps holding him off. He pushes the, the gap up to around like a little over 20 seconds. And at this point, um, my wife says, why doesn't he just let them catch him and then sit on? Um, and it's not a bad tactic normally i actually think it's an underused tactic at times but at roubaix you know if you have a second you have a chance to win the race so you never want to give up anything at this race especially going into a sector as tough as the carfe de labra because you can anything can happen on that you know a five second advantage could could turn into a minute advantage on that section of cobblestones that it's so rough so you always want to keep the gas in the pedals, and which is exactly what he did. It was the right move, in my opinion. Um, he gets he gets caught on the car four, which is good because it's really hard to pass people on this section of cobblestone. So this is like perfect for Johnny Moscon. Vanderpool pulls him in. Um, it means that they're not going to blow by you and drop you probably. But what happens is Cabrelli makes a big, big investment, like a big risk to attack Moscon right here. And I think if you're watching this, you think, ooh, he's not very confident in his sprint because he is wasting a ton of energy attacking a group of riders that he could probably just beat in a sprint. But two things. I mean, it, you never know. It's, it's never, you're never guaranteed a victory in a sprint finish, even if you're technically the fastest rider in the group. So always good to try, especially if it is as selective as the, the road was right here. A lot of people in the past have gotten away on this section of cobblestones. You got to try. Another thing it does, though, is he can use Moscon is basically a pick because he's coming around him 
And it's hard for the other riders to respond because they also have to step out, get off the crown of the road, which is ever so important. The quality of the road is significantly worse, just a few, you know, like a few inches off the crown. So it forces the others to make a decision to either stay behind Moscon on the crown or follow him into the, into the chunder, basically, on the side of the road. Vanderpool does it and, and gets around to follow him, so he doesn't get away, but it, it means Vanderpool is now on the defensive on a section where he should be on the offensive. So that's, that's a huge win for Cabrelli. You know, Vanderpool, all he should have been thinking of is how do I get rid of this guy? Because he can beat me in a sprint, especially a sprint on a velodrome, which favors the type of like long, long power and I think superior top level speed that he has over Vanderpool. So this was a big, big move for him. Now they get to the, there's another section of cobblestones with 14K to go. So it's, it's about a kilometer, a little over a kilometer between these two sections of cobblestones. You know, right here, Vanderpool had to drop Cabrelli if he wants to win this race. Um, he gets into the next section of cobblestones with clean shoe covers. I guess it looked like he had pure white shoes on. Um, it was really just like a set of white shoe covers. I've, I've been in email correspondence with multiple readers of the newsletter who have said that the, the puddles have wa- washed off the, the muck in the mire on the way to that section of cobblestones, and that's how he suddenly got clean shoes. I'm convinced he cleaned them. You can see on the shoe covers, like delineation where he had probably sprayed water to clean the shoe covers so he could win with white shoes. That tells me that, that probably the brain was not totally in the game at that point. He's thinking like, he should have been all invested just in getting rid of Sonny Cabrelli, and instead he's cleaning his shoes. Um, really crazy stuff right there. Like shows a insane level of hubris. And it, at the same time, everyone's forgetting about Florian Vermeesh at this point. Vermeesh, uh, from the early breakaway, you know, got dropped by Moscon. When the Cabrelli and Vanderpool group catches him, he just kind of latches on. He hangs with them when no one else can hang with him. And now he's riding into Roubaix with probably the worst he could do is third place. This is his first time ever riding. He's 22 years old. No 22-year-old has podium bet this race since 2002 when Tom Boonin did it. So this is a big, big deal. And he poses a threat because in theory, if he attacks, who chases him? Um, It means Vanderpool or Cabrelli has to chase him down, which would benefit the other person in theory. So he's pretty dangerous right here and everyone's just forgetting about him. He He does end up attacking with 3K to go. Um, which I liked, but we'll get into this in a second, that potentially this was a mistake. Um, and another note I had from this is Vanderpool is, is really on the front, like really pushing down the pedal here. Um, even though they have like 40 seconds on Moscon at this point, it's clear that he's not going to catch them. I really thought this was a huge miscalculation. I, I think this potentially cost him the win because you know, you don't want to be putting that much power out if you're just going to have to sprint against the people that you're pulling along that are getting a free ride in a few kilometers. Um, I, I'm not quite sure what was going on. His team should have been telling him to, to really back it off. They're not going to get caught. Just do enough just not to get caught. He potentially was worried about Vermeesh attacking, which Vermeesh did attack with 3K to go, but Cabrelli just jumped on him and closed it down, like no questions asked, But which tells us he was feeling very, very confident about his chances of winning in the sprint. And, and rightly so. I mean, before he kind of turns into this, um, Benji Nassen calls him uh, a climby sprinty boy, which is exactly what he is. Um, he, he was like a B-grade sprinter, bunch sprinter, pretty fast though. I mean, people forget how fast he was. He was just a level below those fastest uh, bunch sprinters. And he still has a lot of that speed. He's just gotten a lot stronger and a lot better at 
riding over a variety of terrain. Um, so the fact that anyone would feel confident sprinting against him on a wooden velodrome is totally crazy to me. And, and they get into the velodrome and Vanderpool's still on the front, which, which is the worst place to be. You, ne- you never want to enter the Roubaix velodrome on the front. Um, it, it's a massive advantage to be behind people here. Um, of course, everyone's forgotten about Vermees. She attacks from behind with about, you know, it must have been about 250, 300 kilometers to go. Um, he leads into the final bank. I was shocked at the pop he had. You know, he gets a, he gets a gap immediately on both Cabrelli and Vanderpool. Um, I like this move at the moment, though, because the long move can sometimes win at Roubaix. Um, that's how Matt Ham- Hammond won in 2016. But in retrospect, was this the winning move? You know, did he waste the winning pop too early? Because Cabrelli is so good at these long sprints. You know, even Vanderpool, when, when he's a little bit fresher, um, Cabrelli kind of expertly keeps from getting boxed in by Vanderpool. For a moment, I thought Cabrelli was going to be boxed in. But he steps out just in time and, and comes around him on the finish line. They're, they're all so tired, none of them can stand up. And they almost hit Johnny Moscon, who is just in the way. And the shocking thing is Vermish holds on for a second. You know, Cabrelli gets around him, but it's it's not it's not a blowout. You know, Vermish did not, you know, was not here just to like in, enjoy the scenery. He was really going for the win. He was serious with that attack and he almost stuck it. You know, I think looking back, he maybe could have won it if he would have gone a little bit later. Um, Vanderpool is the weakest of the three, you know, which makes sense. He's been doing so much work at that point, uh, way, way too much work in my opinion, and, and holds on for third. And really, my my big big picture takeaway here is I'm confused. <laughs> I don't still have no idea how Sonny Cabrelli won at a wet Roubaix. Um, I, I wouldn't have wouldn't have guessed that in a million years. So very surprised. Also, Florian Vermeesh, and he's Belgian. He's, he's experienced on cobblestones, but he's young, and he's never even done this race before. Even Matthew Vanderpool, one of the most talented riders in the world, very good at off-road, ride, off-road riding, he's never done this before. So that's still, that's still a pretty impressive result, especially when you look at who they're racing against. Um, I mean, Wout Van Aert hasn't done this a ton, but I think this was his third appearance. Um, I expected him to be better. Uh, you think of like Yves Lampard, Zenik Stebar. Casper Askren, I know, I know a lot of them had bad luck and, and kind of untimely flats, but kind of brings me into my, my next takeaway is, is the equipment. I think equipment, I, I didn't cover this too much. I sent out a breakdown right after the race, and it, I, I didn't have enough time to really sort through what the hell is going on equipment-wise. Equipment but I think the difference for a lot of these riders were clinchers versus tubulars. I haven't heard it discussed too many places, but I know we had a big discussion last year. This was kind of a contentious, this was the most contentious thing I ever talked about on this podcast was the clincher debate. If clincher, if who's riding clinchers is Dakota Quickstep on clinchers. They claim that they're on clinchers. Sometimes I think they're riding tubulars though, but I think this year, um, I had a Bora mechanic tell me this was last year that they ride specialized wheels, the Roval wheels. Roval stopped making their top level wheels in the, in the tubular model, which means the team is basically just getting clinchers. Um, there is the old one. I think it's the CLX Roval wheel. It still exists. So in theory, they, they could provide it to a rider, but I, I think they stopped offering it as a standard offering. And I, I believe Bora at least rode Everyone in the team, including Peter Sagan, who last won this race in 2018 on tubulars, rode this race on clinchers. I, th- I believe the same is true with, with Dakota Quickstep, who ha- has had a rider on the podium here 
every year since 2011, except for this year. Their, their best rider was Yves Lampard in seventh. Um, I believe they also rode the Raval clinchers. And yeah, I, I'm convinced that that has to do that the, all the disappointing results from both of those teams are not a coincidence. Um, Quick Step should have been all over this. I, I, I don't know. Like, it was crazy. Like, they, they just could not hang with the other, you know, the, the riders that coincidentally were on tubulars on the cobblestones. I definitely think there is something to that. I know it's hard for these teams to, especially teams sponsored by big, big companies like Specialized. Like, what does Specialized care about producing a tubular wheel? Like, there, there's no commercial value for that. So I understand why that's difficult. Um, but you just see, like, look at the top three, Bahrain, Bahrain Victorious, Lado Sudal, Alpes, and Phoenix. You know, Bahrain Victorious, you, you might be fooled into thinking that's like a new age team since Bahrain hasn't been in the sport for very long. That's essentially just Lamprey, though. That's a very traditional team. Uh, same thing with Lado Sudal. That's one of the most traditional teams. And Alpes, and Phoenix is a new young team, but it's a Belgian-based team with the two brothers run the team who are uh, very traditional guys. Um, I guarantee you all those three, all those three teams were on tubulars. Um, Ineos was on clinchers with Moscon and paid dearly for it. Lampard's in fifth. Sorry, I said he got seventh earlier. Um, in fifth on clinchers, Christophe Laporte in sixth. Great result by him. Another rider that just really just came out of nowhere for me. Um, Kofidis, I guarantee you, was on tubular wheels. Wout Van Aert, Team Yumbo, I believe on tubulars. Tom Van Osbrecht, Israel Startup Nation. Um, new team, but I believe they have a lot of kind of like a lot of legacy staff members on that team. I believe they're also on tubulars. Guillaume Bovine in ninth, really impressive result by him. He hadn't he had only done this race twice. The last time it was 2013, um, and he didn't do very well. So to get ninth is is really incredible, especially for a North American rider. Um, that's got to be one of the best North American results here in a long, long time. And then Heinrich Hauser in tenth on Bahrain, another team that was you know another rider on on a team that was on tubulars. And speaking of that, just my last takeaway for the race is uh, Bahrain was so good. Uh, they really, you do not think of Bahrain victorious as like a classics juggernaut. They raced this so well. Um, they used Matej Motoric early to keep Cabrelli up, up front. It was crazy early. There was so much water on the road. I couldn't believe it. They kept him up front and on that crown. You know, you had to be on that crown. Once you get over into the muck and the shoulders, you can get stuck in the... It's stuck in the water. The water was so deep. So, um, and they got two riders in the breakaway who could help, who could drive back and help. Marco Holler. If um, if you go back, they enter the cobblestone section before Vanderpool attacks with 70k to go, and Holler's on the front breaking up the group. And you might think like, what the heck's he doing? He's pulling back his own rider. Well, it's actually a pretty clever move because he's just sowing chaos into that group. If that group is smaller, if it's broken up, if he can thin it down then that's better for Cabrelli up the road because it means the race is less likely to come back together. Um, and eventually only a single rider from that group, Vanderpool, ended up making the junction. So really great move by Marco Holler there. And then Heinrich Hauser getting 10th is super impressive. That's, that's one of the best results from him for a long, long time. Um, I believe he got 10th at this race way back in 20, 2009. So um, he's been around forever. Very talented rider um, and was able to help Cabrelli by kind of being a an anchor on that chase group. So all in all, I, I was super impressed with Bahrain. Uh, not not a team that I was. I'm I'm, I'm I do an off season ranking of each team. It's a completely objective 
I don't really put my I don't put my hand on the scale at all. I just uh, have this in-house ranking system where I weigh all the PCS points going in and going out. And I was not very kind to them in my uh, off-season recaps and previews for the coming season. So when I revisit that at the end of this year, I will have to, uh, I'll have to eat some crow on that. But I was pretty impressed with them. And I know that I said that was my last takeaway. But one more thing is um, the bike choices were really interesting here. I think a lot of over the years, a lot of attention has gone to bikes. Um, you know, obviously, Specialized came out with the Roubaix specific, specifically for this race. It's like a more relaxed geometry, uh, I guess a more comfortable bike. But if you watch this race, the Canyon Riders were on their Aero Road bikes. Um, that's like the the most aggressive, most road bike they ha- they offer. And obviously, Vanderpool got third, so it doesn't seem like the bike really held him back. Um, if anything, I think that was a pretty savvy move because Roubaix is is ridden a lot. You're not in a big peloton a lot. Um, you're eating wind, especially if you're in contention to win. So, yeah, it does make sense to me that you would ride an aero bike. And I, I think that's one thing that you know specialized with their marketing. I think the Roubaix is a great bike for for leisure cyclists. Like if you're you know working on the working on the weekdays and you just want to ride on the weekends, it's a great bike. Um, very comfortable, very fast to ride on the weekends. I'm not convinced there's any reason for professional riders to be riding more comfortable bikes, even on the cobblestones. I think these these new bikes are so advanced and the carbon layups are so complex and, and so sophisticated that you can, you clearly can ride. And, and disc brakes have helped us a lot because you can put bigger tires in an aero bike and you're kind of getting the best of both worlds there. I think the, the, the tires are really where it's at. I think the frame, you just want to ride your normal frame. I think also if, if you go back to Matt Heyman, I think Matt Heyman rode his aero frame in 2016 and he won a sprint at pretty high speeds against Boonin, who was on a specialized Roubaix. So it, clearly that, that did help him in the sprint. You know, you're going to sprint faster on an aero bike versus a non-aero bike. So I'm um, just something to watch, that I thought was really interesting there. Also, little shout out to Matteo Jorgensen, also on the Canyon Aero Road on Mobistar. American rider who was in the front group um, until late in the race, he had to stop actually to take a poop because um, he had so many, he could only eat gels because he was in the breakaway early, um, kind of an unfortunate end to the race there. He, he did finish, but not in a great position because of the, the forced number two pit stop. But um, yeah, to make the early break at, at Roubaix is really difficult. And this is like my fifth last takeaway. The, I mean, the breakaway is the place to be. We saw Florian Vermeesh from the early breakaway, Johnny Moscon. So two of the riders in the top four were from the early breakaway. Moscon probably should have won the race from the early break because it's just so much easier up there. It's kind of an inverted logic from a normal race where the breakaway is at a massive disadvantage. They're actually at a, at a massive advantage at Roubaix because you're going over those early section of cobblestones in a small group. You don't have to fight for position versus back in the peloton. You're using so much energy and it's so stressful mentally just to be, you're basically going into every cobble section like a bunch sprint it's a huge advantage just to be able to go in at your own pace and you, you can pick your own line over the cobblestones because the group is so small no stress you're going just about as fast as the group um i mean we saw with with Moscon, the gap never really dropped until he started to have the bad luck with the flat and the crash which actually not bad luck both directly related to his tire choice so it, so this should confirm and, and cement the idea that you want to be in that early break um, it's a huge advantage, obviously more difficult to do the, the bigger, the rider you are, or like the more famous you are. Florian Vermeesh could get second, almost win 
out of the break because no one knew who he was. I mean, Sonny Cabrelli literally didn't know who he was at the, at the end of the race. He called him that rider from Lotto. So yeah, it helps to be a little bit more, more anonymous to get up in that early break. I think if Wout Van Aert got in the early move, it, it, would, uh, it would cause a response. Probably wouldn't fly. So this coming Saturday is the final monument of the season. Giro de Lombardia or E Lombardia is a beautiful race in Northern Italy. Race of the Falling Leaves, they call it. It's centered around Lake Como. Usually finishes in Como um, with the Bellagio Peninsula featuring a lot of like the final climbs. Uh, but kind of what's unique about Lombardia is it does switch the route. The route is not a rote set in stone route like, uh, you know, like Tour Flanders or Pere Roubaix um, or Liège, which, which I guess has changed in recent year, but does not change from year to year. But at Lombardia, they will, they will change the start and finish from a lot of times it goes Bergo, Bergamo to Como, which is my, my preferred route this year. It goes Como to Bergamo. Um, but, but they pick different roads along the way. So the last time it finished in Bergamo instead of started there was 2016, which was won by Esteban Chavez. Um, the, the route is, is quite a bit different from that. I think it's harder. Um, there, there was more climbs in like the final hundred K in 2016, but this year there are some, some pretty serious, um, like mountain passes on the way to Bergamo. It is kind of bereft of lacking, I guess, lacking climbs in the final, you know, 20 K. Normally it's not quite like that, especially when it finishes in Como. Um, it can be a lot of short, like it is like a, a little circuit up and over a short climb, a very technical descent and a finish in town. Um, it's not like that this year at all. So I think that this does help Primoz Roglic, who is really in incredible form right now. He won the, the Giro di Amino past weekend, and he looks very good. Um, if this was an uphill sprint, obviously it would be better for him. But I think this kind of lack of uh, less technical course is, is really going to help him. Um, almost, he can almost be unbeatable here. Another rider, obviously, to keep an eye on is, uh, is Julian Alaphilippe, the reigning world champion. The only thing I worry about, and, and this is a good course for, for Julian because it does, it has a climb with about 4K to go, short climb, like a kilometer, kilometer, half, and then finishes pretty much on a descent. Like the final 3K is just a descent to the finish line. That's perfect for Alaphilippe. Not so great for Roglic. Uh, but he just won Worlds, you know, two weeks ago. I guarantee you the guy's been partying his face off. You know, maybe maybe a little less so than normal because it is a second time winning. So potentially it's not quite as overwhelming as it is the first time. It's funny to me, the, the curse of the rainbow jersey is this thing where the rider who wins the world championships does not usually win a race the following year or just has trouble winning. Um, it clearly started as a euphemism for this guy is, was hammered for like five months and is out of shape now or hungover all the time because he's partying because he won the world championships and he can't believe it. Um, I feel like cycling media has forgotten that this is a euphemism and now really thinks it's a real curse. Like I hear people talk about the curse of the rainbow jersey like it's real. And you're like, no, the, he's, he partied like, like for months nonstop. Like the, he's not in shape because he was drinking all the time. Like, what are you talking about? This isn't some mystical curse. Let's not overcomplicate this. So yeah, there's not some mythical curse on Alphilippe at the moment. It's just uh, possibly hammered, been hammered for two weeks straight. Um, I mean, he does have a kid. He, he recently became a father. It's a second world championship win in a row. So he might be able to weather this better, better than most. Um, and another rider, Tade Pogacar, who 
I would not have believed in recently. He's not been, you know, he's clearly not been the same. Speaking of partying one's face off, um, Pogacar kind of went off the map after winning the Tour de France and emerged not the same rider, not in shape, let's say. But today at a one-day ra- one race, there's all these one-day races. Um, it's today, Wednesday, or sorry, this is, uh, sorry, yesterday. Today's Milano Torino. And then there's another race on Thursday. It's kind of this Italian classics week. They're all great races if, if you can watch them. It can be sometimes a little bit hard to find. Um, and then like, obviously, who's got time to watch cycling during the workday? That's what I'm here for. And kind of finishes with uh, Lombardia on Saturday. But it is a beautiful, beautiful string of races in Italy. Um, Pagaccio attacked with like 120k to go today and looked really good. Um, didn't win the race, got third. But I, he kind of put me on notice there where I was riding him off. He looks back like he looks very fit and he's talented enough that these, these really, really top riders can get in shape so quickly and they can re- reclaim that top form um, shockingly fast. So I wouldn't totally ride him off for, for Lombardia. So Milano Torino update. This um, is, I guess, the oldest one day classic in the world from, you guessed it, from Milano. It's actually Magenta, the outskirts of Milano to Torino. It, it's actually not like Lombardia at all, uh, but everyone who's anyone who's doing Lombardia, who's a contender at Lombardia, does this race, and it does have two very difficult climbs. I like guess it's, it's the same climb they do twice, um, with about 20 kilometers to go, and then it finishes on that climb. It's about 4.5 kilometers steep, 9% grade average, so very difficult climb. So you, what it tells us is th- who's fit. Riders use this as a training race. It's like a warm-up race, a quality, a quali, as they'd say in F1, for Saturday's Lombardia. But everyone's going hard on that final climb. So it tells us who's fit and who to watch for Lombardia. Uh, Primoz Roglic won the race pretty, pretty impressively. Um, Adam Yates was uh, setting pace on the final climb. Him and Roglic broke away from the rest of the field, uh, just like head and, head and shoulders above the rest. And then Roglic... Yates opened the sprint. Roglic comes around him and wins by 12 seconds. So just really, really, I mean, Roglifies him there. Just absolutely crushes him. I was impressed with how fit Adam Yates is. Um, I said when I was recording the podcast yesterday to keep an eye on him, and he definitely, um, it wouldn't be a favorite, but he's definitely fit. And I don't like him for Grand Tours at all. I think he's completely overrated as a Grand Tour contender. But I, I do think he's pretty good as a one-day rider. Um, obviously not a prolific winner, but he can win one days if he has to. Another rider that I was pretty impressed with is Joao Almeida. He gets third, 35 seconds back. Not on the same fitness level. Um, Tare Pogacar is making strides. Uh, as, I, as I said, he looked good at the, um, at the race yesterday. and Actually racing two days in a row, pretty impressive, which could explain he was off the pace in the final climb. Um, just fatigue from yesterday could explain that. He's still not at the level of Roglic, though, which makes sense. He's he's coming off a, a well-deserved break after the Tour de France, but he's also good enough um, that I would still, you know, think he could contend at Lombardia. The big takeaway: uh, Mike Woods was fifth. Mike Woods, um, th- this is perfect for Mike Woods. I believe he's won this race in the past. Uh, he will if he's not winning this, he's not winning Lombardia, especially since Lombardia finishes on downhill instead of an uphill. One one big note here is Julian Alaphilippe is dropped. Uh, he he did it, he made a break. It was uh the the race the footage started with like forty four k to go. That was not how they planned it. They wanted to broadcast the last two hours. The pace was so high. 
Um, the, they they were so ahead of schedule. They just got like the last forty five minutes uh, when they the coverage came on. Alaphilippe was driving a break with like Primoz Roglic, Tadej Pogacar, everyone, every favorite basically was in this move with Chris Froome. By the way, um, kind of impressive. Froome made that move. Um, Alaphilippe was driving it, which could explain why he fell off the pace in the final climb. Was probably working for Joao Almeida, but. Still, even having said that, he I did not like how he looked on the on the final two climbs. He was in a much bigger gear than everyone on the penultimate ascent of the climb. Just already looked like he was struggling. And then to get popped, you know, when Al Philippe's really fit when he's on his best, he's not I mean, it was Usa at the World Championships. You know, there was nothing he could have done that would have sapped his energy for him to screw up that win. And today, it just, it seems like I would imagine he's had a good time since winning Worlds and the distractions and the time off the bike has taken off just a little bit, just enough of that, you know, pop for him to have lost, you know, lost fitness relative to the others. Uh, so the, the big takeaway here is if you're going to take anything from this race, Roglic is on fire. And I would, I would worry about Alaphilippe. Um, maybe not someone I would back for the win at Lombardia. Um, it's just so hard. To, it's so hard to win races after winning the world championships. That's why riders rarely do it. I, I never feel confident about how Lombardia is going to play out. It's basically in summation a very hard one-day race, like one of the hardest, just a very selective course. If you look through the past winners, you know, Jakob Folsang won last year, Balcomelo won the year before, Thibaut Pino won. I still can't believe that. That was a great win though. Vincenzo Nibola, Vincenzo Nibali, Esteban Chavez, Nibali, Dan Martin, Joaquin Rodriguez won two years in a row. Um, and those are the last winners over the last 10 years. So clearly, I mean, all of those riders in some capacity are GC riders. Um, Folsang maybe less so, um, but, but at least aspiring GC riders, riders who have done well in, in mountainous stage races. So you clearly have to be a very good climber, um, who also has the ability to finish a race off. Um, Nibali won, I believe both times with, with pretty stunning downhill attacks. Uh, and then if you go back in time, Pat Palabatini would be kind of, Palabatini and Philippe Jaber would both not GC riders who have done well here. Um, so it's it's pretty a wide it's a pretty wide open race. You have to be very good at climbing, though. Um, that that is something you can't get around. I mean, and Joao Almeida would maybe be a wild card here. I still have a tough time believing that he could. He he's not a prolific one day race winner. He's never won a one day race that's not a time trial. So um, yeah, he would it would be unusual. I would think if he won, um, David Goodell would be kind of an outside pick. Adam Yates. I'm not a big Adam Yates uh, Grand Tour fan, but he can pop off a result every now and then in a one-day race. Um, Bacomelema, I've not seen enough from him to really inspire confidence that he's in shape. And really, the big wild card here maybe is Remco Evenepoel. He had a, he too had a pretty amazing solo victory um, at one of these Italian <laughs> these smaller Italian races. But you know, to me, that, that gets back to the crux of the problem with Remco. It's like, yes, it's impressive when he's at these second and third tier races winning off the front, but you can't do that when all eyes are on you at a major race, or it's much more difficult to. You know, he did win San Sebastian in 2019 with a solo move. It's just very difficult, and he was much less known in 2019. Um, no one's going to let him go uh, 
at Lombardia. You know, he would really have to put in an impressive dig to get away solo. And it, he just does not, in my opinion, does not have the racecraft at this point to be winning races like Lombardia, winning one day monuments. I think he will figure in the finish. I think he'll be impressive at the end there. I'll be very curious to see how him, Philippe, and Joel made a race, race together, um, all three on Tacona Quick Step. Um, gets even more interesting when you think about Almeida's leaving the team, so he won't really give a hoot about team orders. So, um, and Alaphilippe will definitely want to win this race. Um, I have a hard time believing he would he would concede to Remco on, on any points here. Um, it's going to be interesting to watch, that's for sure. And then there are riders like Max Shackman, Diego Olisi, Roman Bardet. Um, you, there's a lot of riders that could potentially be called favorites here. I've not seen enough from any of them recently to think that they would win this. Um, you pretty, you have to be pretty sharp on your form to win one of these things. Um, I know the Canadian contingent will think Mike Woods has a chance. I just don't think so. This finishes on the descent. No way Woods can win that. You know, I would, I would really think Roglic would be my favorite. He just looks so fit right now. Um, Alaphilippe would be second. Maybe Pogacar third. And then it falls off pretty fast. You know, D- David Godow, Remco Evanapol, even though I don't really believe in Remco, he's in such good shape right now. Um, anything's possible with him. Even even if it's unlikely, it is possible. So um, that, that's how you should think about Lombardia. And remember, Saturday, not Sunday. That has tripped me up in the past. But that's it for me this week. Have a great weekend of watching fantastic, what is hopefully a fantastic and beautiful one-day race. And I will talk to you next week. All right, bye.